Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Film by Numbers from Outward Film Network. We are the film podcast in which the topic of discussion is dictated by the number of the episode. Thank you to those who listened to episode zero, zero budget filmmaking and episode one, film firsts. In this episode, episode two, we are discussing film sequels. What makes some work and others not work? How have they changed over time? Are they a thing of the past? Is timing key? Planned and unplanned sequels? Films you didn't know had sequels? And films that you didn't know were sequels. My name is Phil Slatter and I'm joined by the one and only David Woods. Hey Phil, pleasure to be here as always. Now there's an age-old debate about sequels that have surpassed the original film, which ones are better than the original. We're not going to tread that old ground, but Dave, what do you makes a good film sequel? I like a sequel that expands an original world and there's got to be something compelling about that world to make viewers want to return to it. And cynical exercises in franchising, like we've seen with the Saw films, uh, they can ruin the impact of the original film and even cause the original to be denigrated unfairly. For me, I love the world of Alien, um, with Geiger's techno-physical designs creating this unsettling meld of flesh and mechanics. And the original Alien was so great because it preserved the mystery of the creature's origins. And this has admittedly been diluted by expansions of the canon but there's still an inordinate amount of room to explore stories within this universe. And that's shown by the amount of media that it's generated, not just films, but books, board games, video games, and even the Predator franchise crossed over into the Alien universe. Alien was was a horror science fiction film, yeah. as we know. And then Aliens, a lot of people cite it as being better than the original. I think, you know, you can flip a coin. They're both superb films. But what I found most interesting about Aliens is it actually switches the genre You've got a sci-fi yes. horror on the first one, and then it changes. It's not a horror film. It's much more of a science fiction war film, which, as you say, really expands the universe, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, on a very basic level, people have talked about the switch from atmosphere to action with Alien and Aliens. Um, and then you had Alien 3, which um, is kind of a chase movie, uh, almost run like a heist movie. There's that sense of pursuit throughout it so it's something yeah that does does um innovate a lot how it switches genres and quite effortlessly and i think that's a tribute to the world created and i think that originally superhero films you'd often find the sequels would be a bit more interesting because the first film was often about establishing the character this is superman this is spider-man this is batman Mm -hmm. and you'd have to spend almost half the film where you didn't have that titular character within it and it would only be when they discovered who they wanted to be or their other side that you then almost tack on a story in the last third that would then build that character up into a sequel and think Batman Begins and then that became The Dark Knight and Sam Raimi's Spider-Man films as well. I don't know if that's necessarily the case anymore with uh, Marvel and the way that they just keep repeating almost not necessarily the same thing. I don't think that's quite fair, but they've gone down this sort of meta-universe thing as well. So the, the days of having a origin story and then a second story that expands on that almost have disappeared a little bit. But then you have things like Indiana Jones and I would say Die Hard as well that introduces us a character and then that character follows on the adventures in the sequel. So it's not a direct sort of remake or a direct follow-on of the story. It's a new story in the same universe. You know, you mentioned Indiana Jones and, and Die Hards. Those do create closed stories in a very... Um, 
well, I think I think for Indiana Jones, for example, George Lucas imagined it like the old Sunday serials. I think it was of around the 1950s. I could be wrong there. It's very much an emphasis on an on an adventure and everything moves at pace. I mean, Die Hard almost created its own genre, didn't it? We had Die Hard on a plane, mm-hmm. which was Air Force One, and we had Die Hard on a bus, which was Speed. And then the Die Hard films themselves are sort of Die Hard in an airport, Die Hard in a city, all stemming from the original of Die Hard in a a tower block in an office block. It all comes from the idea of the ordinary person being put in an extraordinary situation, and that creates a great conflict from the off. In some respects, though, they are, to a degree, repeating the same story to create uh, the same magic. And I'm sort of thinking of family films that that tend to do that, the likes of Paddington 2, Adam's Family Values, uh, Shrek 2, the Toy Story films. They... They almost do the same thing again to a point, but because the characters are likable, because the worlds are likable, they're worlds that you want to get into and, and, and spend time in. It doesn't always work, I would say. Uh, I would say something like Frozen 2 doesn't quite pull it off. The first one was was quite, quite, quite special, and the second one didn't really expand anything that it needed to. But sometimes just repeating that formula, it can be a good thing. Yeah, I think I think particularly with family films, kids' films, um, kids obviously love being in that same world. They love something, they just want to see it again and again and again, and repetition lends itself to kids' films in that way. Um, you've caught something, it makes sense to give more of it. And I think in that sense, franchising does make a lot of sense when it comes to kids and family films. Um Toy Story has been able to build on that. Um, it's, it's um, yeah, I, th- I think that's quite an interesting idea that the family film benefits in a way from the sequel. One film I think is really interesting from this point of view is, is Peter Rabbit 2. The, the, the first one got quite a bad beating up by the critics, which I thought was a little unfair. I thought some of the reviews were a little harsh. I didn't think it was great. But the second one actually listened to those criticisms and it didn't think, well, what did we do wrong last time? It actually said, well, let's actually make those criticisms a knowing joke within the sequel. And there's a joke about an American taking over this British story. And there's a joke about James Corden's voice being annoying. And it was really interesting to see them do that. And something that I'd not seen done before and massive respect to, to the, the director, I think Will Gluckett is, he, he did a terrific job was, was very open and honest about how he felt about the criticisms and he even said he wrote down a, a scene where it was essentially just two characters reading out the criticisms of the first film within the complex context of peter rabbit 2 and then someone looked at the camera and said i think someone's working through some stuff here so that that was that's quite a, an interesting approach and, and an original one as well and then you've got something like scream 2 which plays knowingly how, how do you go from peter rabbit to, to scream to i don't know but scream to plays knowingly <laughs> with the idea of, of sequels and openly saying sequels suck and it, it mark hermode makes the argument that he felt scream did everything that it needed to do and you didn't need the sequels and i i see where he's coming from but i think because we have slasher film sequels halloween friday the 13th nightmare on elm street and so forth the idea of doing another scream film made perfect sense and i thought scream 2 really toyed with the idea and built on the idea very well. And, and of course, the rules of a sequel too. Well, I think, I, I mean, I'm a big fan of the original Scream. Um, it, it's it, what's interesting for me. I don't actually think it's that strong a trilogy, but I think I agree with you in that the 
the way it very cleverly builds a trilogy on established slasher film uh, traditions is is really fascinating to watch. And what what do you think is it that make, what makes a, a sequel? We're, we're leaning into this now. What what, what makes a sequel mm. not work for you? I mean, is it just that we've said about the repeating of the formula, but so how that could work? But a lot of the time, mm. it doesn't, does it? Well, I, I think actually you've summed up very well. Sequels that don't work are repetitious. Um, we can think of the American Pie sequels, the Jurassic Park sequels, they're uniformly awful. And I would also say that changing the rules to an inordinate degree removes conflict and renders sequels unworkable. Um, but yeah, I guess quite simply, sequels that try to stretch already thin plot lines and ideas are dull to watch and a waste of people's time. I think we'd all probably agree on that. Um, but the, obviously, familiarity is comforting. And if, and we all, have watched sequels in a franchise we enjoy because they're familiar, because we're comforted by them, we like the worlds, and then producers do keep making them, um, even if the sequels have diminished in quality. So I guess sequels really are the prime example of how film production is more business than art in that sense. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned about that that losing of the conflicts. We had that with the, the Pirates of the Caribbean film, which I think are very yeah. much a, a law of diminishing returns. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, very much so. The, the problem is... You kill off a character. We had this also with uh, Kingsman. I haven't seen the second Kingsman, no. the, the new prequel, the Kingsman. No, me neither. Mm. But as, as people have said, Colin Firth is, is killed in the first film. He's dead. There's no two ways about it. And yet he comes back in the second one. And the same with a lot of the characters in Pirates of the Caribbean. And you think, well, where is the conflict then? How am I supposed to really invest in these characters and care about what's going to happen to them if I know full well that you can just change the rules? Yeah, you can kill them off, but you can just bring them back. How, how, is it, how am I going to invest in it? And that, I think, is quite a big mistake that a lot of sequels make. You also mentioned you know, Jurassic Park, The Lost World, suddenly tells us that there was a second island. <laughs> yeah. and you, well, hang on a minute. But what about the first film where the, the, all the, we literally saw a dinosaur being born on Jurassic Park, on Isla Nublar? Mm. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. But then <laughs> we get told there's a second one where they bred the dinosaurs originally. And you think, well, you... What? It just doesn't really make much sense. <laughs> Similarly, The Matrix. You know, we've, we we we're talking about in films such as uh, The Matrix and uh, Kingsman films that are, are quite recent. But The Matrix, at the end of the film, the whole point is that he is the one. That is the main goal that the film is leading to, and it makes me believe yeah. he is the one. But, but well, maybe he isn't. Maybe he's not the one. <laughs> and you think, well, <laughs> you just spent a film telling me he is, and now you're. You're, you're backtracking a little well, bit. Well, I, I actually do like The Matrix Reloaded, um, and I appreciate I'm one of the few people who do. Um, but yeah, even where you've got an affection for a flawed sequel, you you acknowledge it doesn't quite work. And I think on the on the subject of films that repeat the same formula, we said they, they can work, as we've mentioned, with, with family films and adventures that people like. I mean, I, I thought that you mentioned American Pie. I thought American Pie 2 worked okay i thought it was funny and enjoyable but the first one you're not a fan <laughs> not a fan we'll just, we'll just touch on that then for a bit I've, i mean the first sure, american yeah. fight just tapped into a, it was a very very good idea it was yeah. a nice mixture of of silliness and seriousness it was something that a lot of people could relate to and it, it just it just worked it just yeah really i mean hit the mark i think i was about 15 when it came out so it played to me brilliantly it, I, i'm serious about this it was one of the best cinema trips i've ever been to i went with some friends at um, university and we were just everyone was just laughing and having a great time and it, the atmosphere was incredible i think the the line one time at band camp 
and the flute. I don't yeah. think I've ever laughed harder in a cinema than at that line. <laughs> it just you just don't see it coming, do you? I mean, it's, it's <laughs> you don't brilliantly delivered, but. I mean, the sequel did sort of repeat that a little bit. I mean, yeah, too much for me, which is why I'm a bit too much. Yeah, it just just was, yeah, too much for copy. I I thought that there were areas where it did sort of develop back to the idea of repeating the same formula. I think with high concept first films, we've mentioned Die Hard. Um, That that's not really, I mean, it is high concept, but not in the same way as three films that I've picked out that. Uh, really just to repeat it, you've got Home Alone 2, Hangover Part 2, and Speed 2. They're essentially remakes of the first one. Uh, and the, the problem is that the first films are all so high concept that you have to suspend your belief anyway. And then for the same thing to happen to the same characters again, you just think, well, this is... Mm. I, I, was, I, I went along with it because of various reasons, of course. But when it happens again to the same people, you just think, well, this is just ridiculous. And I think that is a major problem. I mean, the idea of Speed 2, this, the same person that was on this... I mean, if you read the story of Speed uh, as a real story, you think, well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> in the news, in the news, you know, where someone hijacked a bus and had to go above 50 miles an hour, and if it dropped below 50, it exploded and he wanted to ransom. Wow. Imagine then a the year later, you read about the same person on that getting caught up in the same thing on a cruise ship in the Caribbean, and the same, some of the same characters just happen to be there as well. Same with The Hangover 2 and, and Home Alone 2. They're... They're so far-fetched because they are, to all intents and purposes, remakes of the first one. So you're like, you are doing exactly the same thing. What's the point of it? And I think that is a big question, isn't it? Yeah, if, if, if you are just trying to make money, which um, I alluded to just before, um, you're just going to make the film in the same way as the original that caught the imagination of everybody. And, you know, people are going to watch it, but like you say, it can be completely ridiculous and people go, well, that just doesn't work. Um, and I, I suppose, I suppose the lesson there is, you know, please think about what you're doing before you make a sequel. <laughs> Don't just yeah. look at the money. Just just one, one thing on speed two. I think my favorite moment in speed two is when Jason Patrick in the middle of the Caribbean runs up to a Ghana jet ski and says, LAPD, I need to take this. And I thought, you're on holiday in the Caribbean, and you've just randomly gone up to someone, and you've justified nicking their jet ski by saying LAPD. Well, I never <laughs> thought anyone would give me a reason to re-watch Speed 2, but thank you, Phil, I think you just of, of all the, I mean, it's, it's a tiny little point, and it's not the most ridiculous thing in that film, but I just thought, <laughs> I remember watching that, I just think, what? Is that how it works, that if you need a jet ski in the... In the Caribbean, you just go up and just say it doesn't show any credentials either. That's why I just says, yeah, it's how it, it works says, in real life. Just say LAPD and off you go. Look, I don't know about anybody else, but as long as I'm going to be promoting this fight myself, I want a lot more pressure put on for a rematch. Hey, we can get the same money for the two top contenders. Why go after Balboa? Why? Because there's still a lot of people out there that think he won. There's a lot of people out there accusing me of having a fight fixed, accusing me of being a fake and insulting my kids at school. That's why. You want to hear the truth? Yeah, I want to hear the truth. The truth is that last time he was damn lucky. Now he's all finished. I mean, he's been hanging around doing nothing for six months. And any trainer worth anything wouldn't have nothing to do with him. Now I say, let's go after some new meat. Forget this bum. Man, I won, but I didn't beat him. I, I like, um, I do like the Rocky saga. Yeah, I yeah, like the yeah, first film. 
I don't really like the second one because I, I think no, it's just and- a remake of the first yeah. with a different ending. But what's interesting what? is Rocky Three is a lot better, and it's because it follows what all good sequels should do. And, that, and the Rocky franchise in general is quite a good example of this, in that it ups the stakes. There's more tension introduced. There's more conflict. Oh, this is a guy who is potentially wild and unpredictable. He, he doesn't play by the rules. Can Rocky really win this? You know, he's willing also, to attack his family and his friends. Apollo Creed is a man of honor. You know, he it's a totally different kettle of fish. But also the fact that he has to use his opponent, Apollo Creed, to help him as well. And he yeah, yeah. becomes a friend Very much so. for two fights. And I just felt with Rocky 2 also, the thing I like about the Rocky films is they're not predictable. The final fight isn't predictable the first time you watch them necessarily. Mm. Uh, but with the second one, it is. It's like, well, he, he lost. He can't lose again, can he? And I, I didn't really see the point. But then it does lead into um, three, which is good. I think four, four is very much become a cult classic. I don't think it got particularly great reviews, but I think it was the most successful sports film ever made at the box office until mm. The Blind Side came along. That's one where, for my money, and this is perhaps not a popular opinion, they sort of made a bit of a misstep with the second one, but then corrected it moving forward. Yeah, no, I'd say that's, um, yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. And I think it is um, a franchise that learns as it goes along, yeah. And the, of course, there are some sequels that, what they try and do is they try and recreate what I would call bottled lightning. And two yeah. examples I've picked out are Dirty Dancing 2, Havana Nights. And the first Dirty Dancing we know is a, a, an absolute classic. Um, perhaps not critically the most popular film ever made, but it's got a huge, huge, huge following. American Psycho 2. Have you ever seen American Psycho 2? No, I'm, I'm relieved to say I haven't. And I, as <laughs> I, I understand it, they it was called something else completely and it wasn't going to be. It wasn't even conceived as a sequel, but they just decided to rebrand it at the last minute, throw in a yeah. Patrick Bateman and um, um, introductory scene, and then <laughs> just go yeah. with it, um, which it's, I think sums a, up how bad it must be. And the, it's it's again this idea of trying to trade out on another name. But just one film to sort of finish this point on: um, Ten Cloverfield Lane, which mm. was a strange sequel. To, I mean, Cloverfield was a found footage film that sort of had themes of 9-11 and a monster attacking mm. New York and I thought worked pretty well and then 10 Cloverfield Lane could almost be its own standalone piece but then they decided to bring it into the Cloverfield universe and I almost felt that that was the element that didn't work I think you probably agree with this because the stuff with John Goodman in the basement is is really good and really yeah. creepy and then it just completely flips genre for the last 20 minutes, doesn't it? Yeah, and I mean, it is almost, almost a great world expansion of Cloverfields. Um, and I won't spoil what ruins it for anyone who hasn't seen it. But, I mean, the original Cloverfield isn't a particularly good film. It doesn't execute an intriguing enough concept to a satisfactory level. And um, what 10 Cloverfield Lane does try to do and does nearly succeed in doing is making something better from that material. But ultimately, that, like you say, that material let it down. And again, it's potential that's not fulfilled. But that is actually a good argument for trying to make a sequel is to coax out a good idea and improve on what was done before. How have sequels uh, changed over time, do you think, Dave? I mean, are they a thing of the past? I mean, the old model, certainly in blockbusters, as we've discussed, was to make a film and then, if successful, make a sequel. I mean, it's seen as quite cynical because it was all about box office rather than whether there was another story. But nowadays we have... Marvel making their own universes and TV series tying into that. And it's almost hard to know what a sequel is these days in some respects, isn't it? 
Firstly, I think audiences and critics more consciously link thematically consistent films by individual filmmakers. Um, for example, we could view Steve McQueen's Shame as a thematic sequel to Hunger, where obsession corrupts the mind and body. Just with Hunger, it's political and religious adherence, and with Shame, it's the corrosive power of sexual desire. But Michael Fassbender's playing a character in both films that's consumed by obsession. And there are also films that explore dark places within us, two sides of the same coin. I mean, of course, that interpretation is very loose and it could take us anywhere across so many films. Coming back to the traditional sequel, I, I think it's still evident, as much as it ever was, and studios still look to cash in on popular success. I think what Marvel have done, as you mentioned earlier, is they've come along and opened up the idea of expanding universes across several films. So in that sense, they've effectively impacted the traditional franchising model. Um, and Marvel do show us that linking characters in the same world and universes can unleash new opportunities for reinvigorating a sequel. However, it would be nice to see this done with more original and tensile material when it comes to mainstream cinema. Plus, films outside America have been doing this prior. As I'm, you know, as I feel, Marvel's a problem when it comes to appreciating cinema, and I'm not just talking about the art of cinema, but just the simple immersive experience it, it can be. I'm not arguing for all films to be wildly experimental, but when you think audiences used to get Alfred Hitchcock as their mainstream fix, and now we've got Captain Marvel and Spider-Man, it's frankly infantile. And although there can be crossovers between comic books and film, for example. DC's Joker. It's quite an interesting psychological examination of the supervillain character, but it's hard to argue that film breaks any new ground. So if we go back to mainstream filmmakers like Hitchcock with just about anything he made, Rear Window Vertigo, more recently Alejandro Gonzalez in era two with The Revenant, Paul Thomas Anderson with There Will Be Blood, Sam Mendes with Skyfall, Chloe Zhao with Nomadland. They're all storytellers of class and style who create fascinating pictures that many, many people enjoy, have huge audiences. I've got to be honest, I'm kind of sad Zhao's directing for Marvel because she's an amazing filmmaker who won't be able to do anything with the material because it's just not flexible in any way. You've got storytelling formula and then there's this rigid thing that can't be imbibed with conflict or urgency. It's interesting though, just back to the subject of the old model of sequels that you mentioned Skyfall because the Bond films recently i say recently i mean casino royale is what 15 years old now it's been around, Gosh, around a long it? time the bond films never really had sequels with the uh daniel craig bonds we had casino royale and then for the first time quantum of solace which was a direct sequel and then they sort of changed it up a little bit with skyfall and then the uh, the last two have followed the the followed the narrative through. Oh, and they did a bit with Connery and Nathan B, did they, with On Her Majesty's Secret Service, then Diamonds Are Forever, followed on from uh, yeah. Bond's, the murder of Bond's wife. Yeah, But it wasn't a direct sequel uh, with the same storyline and that picks up the same strand. So Bond almost was almost inversed it because it used to be this separate standalone adventures. There was a bit of continuity going on, whereas they've actually more recently decided to make direct sequels. But... Do you think nowadays sequels are always planned? Because I get the impression, and we've talked about film, films such as Home Alone, I get the impression that that doesn't happen so much nowadays. They've always got an idea, an eye, at least on, on a sequel. We saw it with, recently with It and Dune as well. Denis Villeneuve's Dune. Um, mm. they, they were muting about, are they going to do part two? But it was all kind of hinging on whether the first one was successful. So they had the story there. It's just a question of whether it was going to be marketable. So is that model dead? And are they always 
planned? Are they, are we, are we, are they, there's, is there always now an eye on there being a sequel? I, th- I think that probably the cynical and honest truth is that, it, yes, um, if this film makes a bag of money, we'd like to repeat that. Um, but it's not always a bad thing if you've got the no, idea of a sequel. No, no, definitely. Before I mean, um, you, know, you mentioned, yeah, totally. And you, you mentioned Denny Villeneuve's chosen Split Dune um, based on its box office. Um, and it would have been a bit weird for, to have sort of half of <laughs> half of the story um, released. Um, but nonetheless, Dune's is a very long book and it's also a complex one in terms of philosophy, religion and culture. So you would, I think, in that case, have one eye on a sequel. And I suppose just to maybe go off on a bit of a tangent, when filmmakers adapt books, uh, they, they should maybe look at keeping the sequence model rather than standalone films, because books have so much more detail and insight. Um, I could also say in that breath, cinema can express thousands of words in a single image. Um, They're entirely different disciplines. It's making them both work. But, you know, we've got this call going on to extend running times of films at the moment, which are noticeably lengthening anyway. And there's got to be a balance between authenticity of the message and sheer self-indulgence. And in all truth, in creating a closed story in a movie, not many films do justify being longer than two and two and a half hours. I suppose with the, the lines between film and television being so blurred these days, the idea of making a, an adaptation of a book into a, a, a big series uh, is a lot more commonplace. I mean, I, I watched The Girl Before uh, on BBC just before Christmas, and that's because I've read the book, and it, it was a four-parter. But, I mean, they, originally that was going to be just one film and Ron Howard was going to direct it. But we do have this idea of, of splitting books a lot more now. Um, obviously, we had the Hobbit trilogy, which was, I think that was actually done for marketing purposes because they ran out of money. Is that so the only film that's actually longer times. than the book? <laughs> it, well, yeah. I mean, and then they, they sort of justified it by saying about the, um, they use all the appendix and all the extra bits and pieces. But even so... They really over-egged it. And I mean, I, I did like the Hobbit films and I did enjoy being in the world. Um, yeah. But I did feel that come the third one, the Battle of the Five Armies, I thought, I thought well, okay, you, yeah. you really have run out of stories. Yeah, that's here. where I dropped You're out. Really stretching yeah. it. We also see films, uh, films splitting books of end of big sales. Also with Hunger Games and Harry Potter, they decided to split the last two just to sort of, maybe it's to try and wring a bit more money out of it or is it to try and stick more closely to the original text? But um they're kind of end franchises really as opposed to, to direct sequels i mean how many films do you think are made with no sequel in mind i can't imagine there are many but yeah maybe there's a sequel that comes as an afterthought in that point which well that might point to poor timing on the filmmaker's part i mean is 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 timing key uh, when it comes to a sequel mm. because a lot of the time we we can forget about the original film i, I picked out three films that's had quite big gaps in between the original and the sequel uh, train spotting 2 which i think we like i, I think I, I say we i liked it as a film i think you liked it but just it wasn't anything on the first one but had some good ideas but then there's the likes of bad santa 2 and basic instinct 2 which they came along a long time after the original film and it was almost like even if you liked those originals did you really feel the need for a sequel and and people not almost forgotten about them. And that can be a problem, can't it? Yeah, I mean, actually, um, although I thought there were a couple of incredibly shot and designed scenes in Train Spotting 2, it, it felt unnecessary to me and just way too late. And I didn't really enjoy it, sadly. I love the original Train Spotting. It is just one of the great British films. And for me, it just was everything. 
um, that it needed to be. And I, there was just, it's one of those films that really didn't need a sequel. That's you love being in the world, but you like it just being there. I think it was a film when, when yeah. we came out, we kind of thought, well, that, that was quite a good film. But then you, I think you made the point, you're going to, in six months or a year, are you going to forget it existed? And I thought, yeah, you're probably right with that. It, we will forget that there was a sequel to Train Spotting. And Train Spotting itself was more than just a film wasn't it it was a cultural oh, moment it, it really was yeah with the you know the soundtrack were captured so many good songs in in our in that in that era uh and there was just a real urgent anger to it as well which i think when you're growing up in the 90s and stuff you really felt so yeah um it was a real film of our generation maybe similarly with basic instincts and people almost misremember the first film it's not all about what you think it's about necessarily there's more to it than with basic instinct obviously it is a softcore thriller but there's more to it than just the sex and yet people yeah say, there is there's michael enough. douglas's uh knitwear sweater in the, in the club yes. yeah the best thing i heard about that someone said this is a great indication about why you shouldn't take drugs because you'll <laughs> go to a nightclub dressed like this um, but, but those films that die out um not not they die out they stick around but people don't they're happy to revisit the original but we don't really want a sequel. And yeah. I don't think that would necessarily be the case if they'd have made a sequel sooner um, with, with those films, but whether those sequels would have been any good, I don't know. I mean, a, another film that sort of goes against that was Wall Street 2, which isn't a great sequel, but there was a long time between the first and the second, but the timing of it certainly seemed relevant because the state of the financial world, and it felt like it was a good time to go back into Wall Street and visit the great characters of, um, of Gordon Gekko. Uh, Michael Douglas was still an intimidating street screen presence. And I think that, that in that regard, um, maybe that it was the right time for a sequel to, to Wall Street, but... The film itself, I didn't really think did very much. I don't. Know I, I didn't. I enjoyed the first Wall Street. Um, it's got some exceptional dialogue and a great soundtrack, and but never felt moved to watch the sequel because I still felt feel the original has a lot of relevance today. Um, yeah, I mean, but I, I I can see the justification for exploring capitalism as having the same bankrupt ethic ethics shifted behind new marketing. So maybe I haven't seen it, but maybe Wall Street 2 suggests marketing is the new corporate evil. Um, just a, it's a different message. The new law of evolution in corporate America seems to be survival of the unfittest. Well, in my book, you either do it right or you get eliminated. In the last seven deals that I've been involved with, there were 2.5 million stockholders who have made a pre-tax profit of $12 billion. Thank you. I am not a destroyer of companies. I am a liberator of them. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that Greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Would you ever make a sequel to any of the films you've made? Yes, definitely. Um, as we've already discussed, when the world compels it and you can create something of interest from it, it would be silly to shut off those opportunities uh, to express yourself creatively. When it comes to franchising, I think as a struggling filmmaker, I can't honestly say that I'd reject the money. Um, I, I like to think I wouldn't do anything I had no connection with. Um, that that would not feel good to me. I suppose there, there would be two approaches that there could be. One, you've got an idea for a sequel. Okay, let's do it. 
uh, or two, someone tells you that they want you to make a sequel to something you've already done, in which case you're coming at it from a different angle and then you've got mm. to, the creative process comes afterwards. I mean, the only film that I think we've made that I had an idea for a sequel was, was a film called Barry, a short film that actually uh, had quite a few, I think got even got a cinema release, a pop-up cinema release and did well it at did, Marbella yeah. and Fisheye Film Festival. And it is it's available to watch on our YouTube channel as well. Indeed. It's a, essentially a, a satire of, of two quote-unquote actresses queuing up to appear in a new reality TV show, but they're arguing about the fact that they don't really want to be famous, they want to be proper actresses, but secretly they actually do want to be famous. And there's some interesting ideas and written by the, the great Matthew Simmons. Uh, my idea for a sequel is could you then take it further and see what happens in the audition phase because the film ends with them going into the audition. Whether we would just be treading old ground, I don't know, but the idea is there, the idea is there, Matt, if you're listening. So if you want to <laughs> want to expand it, I'll, I'll take a story credit. I mean, but are there any films that there are when we get into the idea of, of, of sequels and some films we know have sequels and some sequels are very famous, but there are films that you didn't know were sequels. I mean, do you ever consider Silence of the Lambs as a sequel, even though technically it is? Well, um, I didn't um, because I wasn't aware of Manhunter at the time of seeing it. And what a discovery that was, by the way. I love both films. Uh, there's definitely films I didn't know had sequels. Uh, I think of films like Starship Troopers and Tremors, and I love the original films of those. Um, but they've got several cheap spin-offs, And that does, there's actually an argument there where they, they'd be clearly been making these films because they're easy to make. They've got a ready audience. They're made for a straight uh, home release market. Um, and if there's, there's kind of an acceptance there with, with B-movies B because they can be a place of surprising experimentation for up-and-coming filmmakers and feed the lifeblood of the A-list movies. Um, so you could say sequels have a lot of value to the exploitation market in that regard, the B-movie market. I mean, with, with Silence of the Lambs, it's very much a standalone piece, but mm, mm. you do have that continuation of the character of Hannibal Lecter. The books existed there with uh, Red Dragon first, um, which is a terrific novel. I think it's the best Hannibal Lecter book. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's very interesting that they effectively made a sequel, but I don't know, promoted it as the original in, 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 in itself. Well, it's, I don't it's think Manhunter was a, much of a success at the box office. No, uh, and no, maybe not. You, you do, you do get introduced to Hannibal Lecter in the Silence of the Lambs. Yes, yeah. Um, it's yeah. not like I'll oh, remember that guy who helped out when, or who didn't help out, who was involved with the Tooth Fairy. That yeah, him. Well, we'll bring him in again. So there's no <laughs> reference to Manhunter there. So whether it's a sequel, it's sort, it's almost a sequel just because of the book, but they're interchangeable, aren't they? So, you know, you could quite mm -hmm. easily have Silence of Lambs without the first one, without Manhunter, without it making sense. And it still makes sense. I mean, there are films that you didn't know had sequels. I mean, I, I mentioned The Wicker Man, um, which is an interesting one, because if you read the book Inside the Wicker Man, and that is on our reading list there on outwardfilmnetwork.com, there's an extensive reading list. And Inside the Wicker Man is on there. It's well worth checking out. Uh, there is talk of how they there is actually the treatment for a sequel in that book in which how he actually survives the final crucifixion. Also on our YouTube channel is an analysis of the final scene, which, which mentions this as well. Uh, and when you read that treatment, you think, well, actually, I'm quite glad you didn't make that film because it, I don't think it would have worked. Yeah, no, yeah, it would have spoiled it, wouldn't it? But then there is The Wicker Tree, which I think Robin Hardy said is a companion piece as opposed to a direct sequel. Um, 
again, the idea of expanding what the sequel means. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you you mentioned uh, some films that almost had what um, we'd have to explain this to the younger listeners, but direct to video sequels uh, like Starship Troopers 2. Because the, the traditional release was obviously they'd come out in the cinema and then they'd come out on home entertainment, but then sometimes... Yeah, now they'd be just sequels. down for streaming or downloads. Um, that's kind yeah. of where they'd end up, yeah. Just just doing some sort of research into this. I mean, Donnie Darko's got a, a sequel. Um, it does, yeah. Called, called S. Darko. The Birds 2. That was a good idea, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Who needed it? Can't say I've I mean, seen it. No, no, can't say I have uh, either. And... Uh, the Sting too, as well. Uh, I've not seen. I love I, the Sting. Yes, I am aware of it. Yeah, the Sting is um, a really great film, but uh, yeah, I haven't seen the second. I, again, that's, the Sting felt perfect and didn't need any more. You could, you absolutely could sequel it, but hmm. I never felt the need. <laughs> and um, one, just two films we other to mention in a very different genre. Of, uh, we had Knocked Up, and then This Is Forty, which was billed as a sort of sequel because some the reaction was that they liked these other characters as opposed to the main two in Knocked Up. So they made a, a sideways piece, which was more of a drama really and, and had some moments but didn't really work. But that was, uh, they both work as standalone films. You don't need one one, one or the other. Um, but that was just an interesting approach that, that a film to do that. But the one other film that does have, a number of sequels is Psycho. Now, have you ever seen the sequels to Psycho? Never. I've only seen the original. Yeah, and it, again, the, didn't feel the need to carry on. I'm the same, but Kim Newman is very much a, a horror guru. What he doesn't know about horror film isn't worth knowing. He's always championed the sequels, really. Um, he's always said that he thinks that they're quite good. Uh, he's, he's written positive reviews about them. and I, I'm sort of intrigued by them, <laughs> I, I think, based on that. Uh, I, I don't know whether... I'm, you can't go into it and expect it to be better or more influential than Psycho, which is one of you know, the great films of all time. That, but yeah, you can understand how there is a world to explore because you've still got the Bates Motel and you've still got Norman Bates alive at the end of the first film and what happens to him. And, and I don't know, maybe I will delve into them one day. I'm not so sure. Yeah, well, I, I delved into the Tremors franchise and uh, watched Tremors 2 and um, it wasn't great. Uh, <laughs> that's the thing with again it's that weird thing I kind of like I love the world and I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't put myself past watching Tremors 3 another franchise we haven't discussed yet is um, well we briefly discussed horror franchises Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street but yeah. Halloween's a funny one isn't it because there were multiple Halloween films that I think in general the general rule is Law of Diminishing Returns but then they turn around with uh, the more recent Halloween, not Halloween Kills, but the one before that, that actually tapped into some interesting ideas and it actually got rid of a lot of the stuff that came out in the sequels and had some good moments in it. So that was perhaps one where you get further. We, we're going beyond just the world of sequels. We're getting into sort of franchises and series now, but it was a, a kind of standout moment um, in that um, saga. I think, you know, with, uh, getting into the franchise territory you mentioned, I think they're all sequels to the original film. So that's a very valid in, point making that. In some respect, yeah. So yeah. maybe that's because it is a uh, the Halloween. Halloween is a sequel to Halloween, if that makes sense. The, I, I don't know why they do this. They did it with, they've done it with Scream. They've just <laughs> called it Scream, the new, the Scream 5. They've just called it Scream again. And I think, why do they? Sure, that's going to get confusing. Maybe they should have called it Scream again. Yeah. 
um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know why they do that. It, it's it's going to be confusing, but um, maybe they're just trying to tap, trying to say, look, we're tapping back to the original as opposed to all these sequels that we've had. But um, we do like to end these podcasts with uh, recommendations, um, three from each of us. And so obviously in this regard, we're going to be ending with a recommendation of sequels. Um, Dave, what's your first your first choice for our listeners? Well, um, I do like to try and think of, uh, well, I like my picks to maybe be something um, that maybe isn't too obvious. So maybe, maybe just something a little different. So um, my first pick's going to be one of the sequels to Kinji Fukusaku, who directed Battle Royale, his series Battles Without Honour and Humanity. And they were part of a um, an early mid 1970s five film Yakuza saga, also known as the Yakuza Papers in the West, and I, I was ve- I was very close to picking the second film Hiroshima Deathmatch, but um, I've gone for 1973's Proxy War, and that edged it because um, well, actually, an interesting point about Proxy War is it's actually the first of two parts in a five part series itself, so. It's the third film in a series. It's a sequel in that sense. And it's also the first film in a new series. So if that's not too confusing already. Um, But it's the most dramatically complex, I think, of all five films and very satisfying dramatically in that sense. Um, Playing police against gangsters in this war of attrition and examining both sides of the law, which is what the great TV series The Wire did about 30 years later. And I think what makes Battles Without Honour and Humanity in general so brilliant um it, it it captures a real sense of loss and displacement in japan after the second world war and then this insatiable appetite for renewal during the economic boom of the 1960s but given the age of these films it's amazing how exciting and instant they remain and i think the first three are the strongest entries but the whole series is, celebrates intelligent, complex storytelling informed by the linking character of Shotsuhiro no, who's played by Bud Sagawara, and shows what you can really do with expanding a world. And to give you, you know, kind of an idea of, of how, it, how it runs, um, they've often been referred to as Japan's answer to the Godfather films. But like Coppola's films, which were filmed in a very studied portraiture kind of style, the Yakuza paper films were shot in this kinetic, fast-paced documentary style. So this was a really new kind of realism and ferocity uh, to Japanese genre crime filmmaking at the time. And that would be my first pick, Proxy War. So that was your first recommendation. I've gone a very, very similar, really. I've gone for um, Toy Story 2. Oh, so, so which, it's the pretty much identical <laughs> films. I've, mm. I've actually cheated a little bit. I've gone for Toy Story 2 and 3 because I felt the first Toy Story was groundbreaking. In so the sequels, Phil, it's fine. Yeah, that's fine. That's, but I'm, I'm, I'm having two for the price of one here. Because <laughs> as I said, the first, the first Toy Story was groundbreaking in so many ways. But at its heart, it had a story with an emotional resonance and grown-up themes alongside you know, many lovable characters. Uh, the second film builds beautifully on the ideas and it gave more backstory to Woody, some superb in-jokes, and it somehow managed to raise the bar. And then the third came along and it raised the bar even further. And I think thematically, it's the richest of the three films. It's about retirement. You've got characters like Mr. Pricklepants and Lotso, and not to mention the infamous, or not infamous, the famous furnace scene. At the moment, is so clever because you watch that film and you know full well that the toys aren't going to get destroyed. But instead of making it this random uh, escape or this frantic escape to get for them to get out of it it makes this beautiful moment of friendship where they all just hold hands and they face their doom together and then the actual escape that does come about that you 
know is going to be there, you don't quite know how, is very clever and harks back to the aliens of the first film and the idea of the claw. And then with Toy Story 3, of course, there's the ending, which really caught me unawares the second time I watched it. The first time I saw the film in the cinema, I didn't have uh, children of my own. And the second time I watched it with my daughter, and she got tearful because of Andy leaving the toys. And I started to resonate with the theme of your children growing up and leaving home. And I got emotional, so it was working really well on these two levels which just shows just how clever pixar can be when it does these adult and child themes and people say it makes jokes for the kids and jokes for the adults but it does emotional themes for both as well uh, toy story 4 i think is fine do kaboom and forky are great additions but the bar got so high with toy story 3 that it almost became impossible for the series to get any better but the fact that the series started so well and improved so much was was quite astounding and I, I even said when the third one came out, that's the greatest film trilogy of all time because it's so consistent. I don't think you can find three films, even the first three Star Wars films or Back to the Future, anything like that. I don't think you can find three films that are as consistent as that. So my second recommendation is Toy Stories 2 and 3. What's your second, uh, your second recommendation, Dave? So Roger Ebert, the late film critic, he in 2006 described my second pick as he wouldn't claim it's fun to watch, but if audiences still exist for movies like this and debate them afterward, the arguments afterward will be the real show. And my second pick is Lars von Trier's Mandalay. And I think this, and this says a lot, I think it's one of von Trier's most challenging films. Um, It's it is indeed um while remaining it remains absorbing in a deeply uncomfortable way um but it's actually the second as you say it's the sequel to dogville which was made in 2003 and it's actually the second in Lars von Trier's self-proclaimed usa trilogy which concluded with 2019's the house that jack built but Mandalay shot in an identical fashion to Dogville on a sound stage with no physical sets, just chalk outlines, sound effects, the odd prop and the actors. And this gives it this very eerie, Spartan immediacy, um, which, given the themes of racial tension, is particularly palpable. It's set in 1933 Alabama, where these gangsters turn up um, and they find this plantation where slavery is still surviving as an institution. So it stars Lauren Bacall, who's the owner of the plantation, um, the late, great Lauren Bacall. And it also stars Danny Glover, who plays her foreman, Wilhelm. And it also stars Bryce Dallas Howard, who plays Grace, the gangster's daughter. She decides she's going to free everyone and um, she's going to liberate the slaves. And it's Wilhelm who resists and says, we're not ready for this responsibility. And it's such a challenging idea in, in that sense. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, I, as, as Ebert's referring to, I'm one of the audience members for this kind of film. And I love how Von Trier really shows his fury against racism by satirizing, um, shall we say, the exclusion of black people from, from race debate by maybe uh, uh, this white guilt um, and Mandalay also identifies a fundamental corruption of colonialism, which basically demands that you know, demands that there's a civilization, as it terms it, and creates the idea of the other. When what von Trier is saying, we're, we're all people with complex thoughts and feelings, different ways of looking at the world. And Grace, this character who thinks she's totally right, 
uh, it's so selfish um, because the debate is about a wider community and our society as a whole. And I think also Von Trier has this really deep satire on how America is as guilty of colonialism as Britain, France or Spain were. Um, and as as you can imagine from what I'm saying, this is a it's a troubling, um, difficult film to watch, um, but it is never less than compelling and certainly something that expands the idea of the sequel beyond what we can comfortably expect. And I think for that reason, it, it would be my second pick. Now, my second choice is James Whale's Bride of Frankenstein, obviously a sequel to Frankenstein, which uh, came out a bit before and is also well worth checking out. But Bride of Frankenstein, I think in many respects, it, you could argue it invented postmodernism because right at the start, you've actually got Mary Shelley as a character introducing the story. And we know that the first Frankenstein isn't, the first James Whale Frankenstein isn't a faithful adaptation of the book. Uh, and interesting to see that there is a, going to be a uh, story of Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein, I think, in the works at the moment. But I think that Bride of Frankenstein really develops the character a bit more of the monster. He becomes more sympathetic. He's sympathetic in the first film and misunderstood, but I think we get more of that, especially in that wonderful scene with the blind hobo, which it's quite an obvious metaphor, but you need to remember it was made in the 1930s, so subtlety wasn't necessarily part of the game back then and the idea is that he can't see the monster yet he's the only one who can truly see the monster for who he is and for the tortured soul that he has become so it's got that element of postmodernism. it's got that a lot of religion in it a lot of uh, religious themes running through it the monster's last meal of, of bread and wine with the with the hobo and it's got that terrific ending where the monster actually understands better than anyone else and I mentioned about uh, religious themes as well. And we know that Frankenstein is a story of man playing God, but then the monster is can be perceived in some respects as something of a, a Christ-like character. And I, I really, really love Bride of Frankenstein. It's not very long either. It's only one hour, 10 minutes. And I just as a sort of almost a side note, but the ending where they create the bride is just brilliant. It's a real throwback to the sci-fi and horror of, of, of early cinema with the big light bulbs and the lightning and the, streaks and all this going on and the smoke going off and it's it's quite melodramatic but it's terrific fun and that sort of stuff has almost become parody now and if you were to make something like that today it would perhaps be a lot more toned down and a lot more serious because it's not meant to be silly and it doesn't come across as, as silly or comical but it's just good fun to see a director having fun and a production design team saying right there let's make this big let's put this big light bulb in let's put these big lightning streaks in let's really go for it to to really hammer home hammer home the point and i just really enjoyed that scene it was just not in a not in a comical way i can't stress that enough but it could become if you did it now remade it in that respect it would come across as comical because of the way that genre expectations have, have changed over time but that's my second recommendation um, james wells bride of frankenstein dave what's your third one mm. Yeah, those uni early Universal pictures are quite satisfying, aren't they? The monster the, classics. The, great, the one good thing about Van Helsing, uh, the Stephen Summers Van Helsing, which was pretty terrible, is that Universal released a load of their original monster films on box set DVDs, and I purchased Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein in the lovely oh. little box set, and it says says Universal Home of the Monsters, and I, that was a long time ago. I've still got that to this day, and that was the, the DVD I dug out in research for this. Brilliant. So I'll always be thankful for Van Helsing for that. <laughs> for two hours of money that I wasted going to see. <laughs> um, so my third pick is actually the sequel in an unofficial trilogy. 
but one that I think a lot of people will be familiar with. It won the Grand Prix at the 2004 Cannes Film Festival, and it was thematically linked to uh, the other two films in the trilogy. And of course, it's Park Chan-wook's Old Boy from 2003. Uh, it followed Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance of 2002 and concluded with Lady Vengeance in 2005. And its linking theme is that desire for revenge when people are pushed too far. What what do they do? And it also explores the effects of trauma. So they're notoriously difficult films to watch. They're challenging films because they don't apologise and they don't relent. Um, Old Boy tells the story of a man who's been in prison for 15 years and then released with no explanation as to why he was confined and released. Then he's given five days to learn his captor's true identity and find out why he was imprisoned or his new love interest will be killed. And it takes its cue from Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. But what it does a little bit differently is it counters that lack of hope that there is quite palpably in Sympathy and Lady Vengeance. With a, with a sort of a manga vibe, a comic book vibe, uh, you might particularly recall the famous action scene with the hammer, which is brilliantly filmed in one wide shot that also remains intriguingly claustrophobic. And why this is so brilliant is it makes Old Boy grimly amusing in parts and it carries the central mystery through to its reveal by disarming the viewer from the horror of the truth. And you've got Park's astonishing move camera movements and you know it goes to details you don't expect. Um there's the constant sense in the cinematography of being boxed in and in the production design, you can't get away from what's unfolding. And it makes it an elevation of Park's approach to sympathy and a spectacular viewing experience that just becomes a fervent cinematic memory for anyone who's ever seen it. And it's just a wonderful weave of a tapestry of ideas into expressive visual storytelling. Um, and it deserves to be more than a cult classic, maybe it serves to be the classic that it is. Excellent. I never really never realised that was a sequel. Never even thought Indeed, of it as such. Yeah. I've seen it, of course. Unofficial, but, um, of course. But. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thoroughly recommend Old Boy. Not the Spike Lee remake. Exactly. The original. Uh, my final third, my third and final choice is Back to the Future 2. Now, I, I see the Back to the Future <laughs> trilogy as almost one complete saga. Um, mm. It is one. I, I don't really differentiate the individual films because of the way I came to them I didn't go and see the first one and then the second one by the time I was watching films all three were there and I sort of watched them back to back regularly and we talk about sequels repeating the formula of the first film and what Back to the Future 2 does is it goes back into the narrative of the first film from a new perspective which is very very original very clever it's almost European in its structure and in its narrative. But before it does that, I mean, it's very much a three-part film. You've got the future, the August of 1985, and then them going back to the 1955 adventure that they had before. But it has great fun going to the future. And I love how they worked to predict what the world may actually be like. And they did research and they got many things right. It's what's fascinating. Multiple TV channels, drones, mm. instant news, 3D movies, film series that go on and on and on multiple sequels you know you think of what, what, what are we up to with fast and the furious now 12 and yet back to the future too they have jaws 19 and if you do get a chance go on to uh, youtube and type in jaws 19 trailer they made it when um it was a spoof trailer made by the filmmakers when back to the future where in 2015 when back to the future uh, was back to the future 2 was set uh, that's very very funny and very very clever um, you've got voice and thumbprint recognition. But interestingly, they still use fax machines because nobody had predicted the internet. In the, even in the wow. late, the internet's kind of the biggest thing 
that sort of happened maybe in the past hundred years, you could argue, but nobody predicted that it was going to happen until um, till the, the yeah. early 90s when it was here. And in Back to the Future 2, they got so much right, but they didn't see this thing coming. They still thought we'd use fax machines, which I, I find fascinating. So yeah, side point, but talking about predicting the future, even in the auction at 1985, you have essentially a Donald Trump in power. <laughs> Um, so predicted that um, from which happened in 2016. I know it wasn't part of the 2015 universe in Back to the Future 2, but nonetheless, it was very, very quite, very astute. Um, but it is its own <coughs> standalone adventure. And um, part three standing on its own as well. And I, I love part three, but the two do feed to feed into one another well. And the story shifts focus from the character to Doc in that film. And there's the moment where they switch dialogue when. Marty says, great Scott, and Doc says, I know this is heavy because the focus is actually on Doc's character, which again is an example of filmmakers knowing what they're doing and realising they've kind of exhausted the possibilities with Marty's character. They've told everything that they need to tell with him, so they shift the focus onto Doc, who was also <clears throat> very well liked. It was a series that always stayed ahead of itself. They're not going to make any more, which is great. They're never going to remake them, which is terrific. And as I said, I see them as one complete adventure and um, you can tell that part two was wasn't planned by the way that they write uh, the character of jennifer out of the adventures they write her in and they even admitted that if they knew they were going to make a sequel they wouldn't have had to get into the delorean at the end of the first film because then they just basically she spends the rest of the saga asleep doesn't she they shift her around a bit but um nonetheless back to the future two i think really works well i think you could argue it's probably the weakest of the three but I think it's still very, very strong, great fun, uh, and very, very clever. And like I said, I just love the way it goes back into the first film from another perspective and plays with that idea. And you, you know what's going to happen there, but you don't know how this one's going to affect that one. And yet the two don't cross over. So if you go back and watch the first film, you don't watch it and think, well, hang on, in the second film, this character should be here and this character should be there. So that's very, very, very clever and really, really smart filmmaking from, from Zemeckis and Gale. So my third recommendation, Back to the Future 2. Great. Yeah. I think that brings us uh, to the end of episode two of Film by Numbers. And we haven't even mentioned Star Wars. Yeah, I think we've done very well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but we like Star Wars. We're not we do. And, well, at least some, the original some three. Star Wars, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, well, it's out there. I think I think people know about it, don't they? Yeah, and they it comes into the discussion of screen in Scream Two when they say sequels that have surpassed the original. Says Empire Strikes Back. Says no, that doesn't count because it's part of a trilogy, so it was already planned. So, but nonetheless, still a sequel and Empire Strikes Back, well worth watching. Um, Star Absolutely. Wars four, five, and six, one, two, three, seven, eight, nine. Nah, don't bother. Generally, but anyway, that does bring us nicely to the end of. Uh, of episode two of film by numbers uh, thank you very much for downloading we hope you are, uh, are have enjoyed and are enjoying this series we're going to continue we're on twitter as i said at film numbers pod and at outward fn you can search outward on facebook instagram and our youtube channel on our website is outwardfilmnetwork.com uh, we'd love to hear your feedback and any ideas you have for future episodes linked to numbers so do let us know if you've got any suggestions next up it's episode three We've called that Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, and we are going to be discussing the work of the very, very talented and very, very much-loved actor and producer Francis McDormand, who Dave and I are big fans of. Yeah, I'm looking we'll forward to that one. Fargo, yeah. Three Billboards, Coen Brothers, Nomadland, and the many other great films and roles that she's played. That's next up on Film by Numbers. Uh, thanks for downloading and listening. We hope you've enjoyed. Take care of yourselves, and bye for now. Bye.
Thanks. See you soon. Since we last saw Annie, some things have changed. This almost seems too perfect, doesn't it? Some things. Want me to step on your feet? Haven't. Where I am, never leaving the house again. Now they can't change course. Seems odd. Yes, it is odd. They're abandoning ship in the middle of the night. They can't stop. Somebody find the captain! And they can't. The captain is dead. Get off. Who is running the ship? Oh, yeah. I am. A position charges throughout the ship. Where is he? It's everywhere. <laughs> I've been in worse situations than this, and panicking does not help. Trust me. I know who you are. I know you, too. Are you going to stop me now, my friend? <laughs> that was odd. What kind of cop are you? You're going to get us all killed. This summer, he's taking us right into an oil tanker. Man! If you didn't catch the bus... Oh, oh, let's bust the transmission like a car, because I, I, I've done that. You won't want to miss... How do you like your vacation so far? Man, I just bought a condo here.